All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part three of this uh yeah, I call it an orgy, Templar orgy, we have today with none other than Scott Walter. And Scott, are you ready for part three? I'm, I'm ready, Freddie. <laughs> yeah, great. You've uh, uh, talked a lot now about the Kensington Stone. We, we all now know that it's genuine. We have touched upon the incredible rare documents, uh, the... Journal of uh, Sinclair and the Cremona document. I, I believe it's also called the Scrolls of Ontaro. Antiora. Antiora, okay. So that's covered. Uh, and it's such a big story that we have to get you back in the future sure. when your new book is out, right? And go more into that. Yeah. You teased us. That's That should surface for now. But <laughs> what, <laughs> what remains is uh, maybe an even bigger story, namely what all the fuss is about. And uh, I believe, again, we can go back to the runestone as a key that unlocks these big doors yeah. into the, the huge Templar. You got it. Templar or spiritual. It's, it's even bigger than the Templars. The Templars are just a chapter, as I understand it, in the whole saga. Yeah, definitely. So, so let's go, go back to the stone. Um, I want to say that when I did some research, I saw, because some people will ask us after they listen to part one, how do you think the, the stone was local and not moved? Right. right. And then uh, I discovered there's internal evidence because when the texts say it's on an island, didn't they discover in 1937, you know, hydrological surveys that it indeed was an island like? No, no. Um, and, and, and this brings up a really good point that I do make in my lectures when I do my long form. <clears throat> the word in Swedish, which I don't have it off the top of my head, um, actually means a rise in land. And mm. um, a rise in land can be either a hill, a peninsula or an island. So um, the word isn't just island. It really, it really has, uh, it, it means a rise in land. So you really have to be careful. Um, the lesson that I say when, when I talk about this is you have to really be careful when you interpret um, one word from one language into another, because yeah. its meaning can be uh, maybe uh, pigeonholed into an area that isn't totally correct. And in this case, island is not correct because the water levels, even in the 14th century coming forward, are pretty much the same as they are now. Now, you want to go back, you know, 10,000 years, it was a different story in the post-glacial environment. But oh. um, 14th century, that would not have been a hill or would not have been an island. And I know that country pretty good. I've been out to the farm numerous times over the years, probably 30 or 40 times, and uh, I've looked at that very thing. But the point is, is that they're talking about this spot where the stone was found. Yeah. I was not technically correct. Yeah, because in one of your shows, uh, Vikings in Arizona or something, there it was flooded with uh, streams and lakes. 
uh, back in that era. Right. And I read somewhere that uh, hydrological survey in 1937 indicated that also this area was flooded with uh, lakes and streams. Okay. But if what, I mean, what you say now means that we don't even need an island, so it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It could still well, be there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's plenty of wetlands there and, and ponds and streams and small kettle lakes. I mean, they just dot the the area and, and certainly near Kensington. But yeah. again, you know, this is at the headwaters area of the, the divide between the uh, uh, Red River Hudson Bay watershed and the Red River or, and the Mississippi Missouri watershed to the south. So, yeah. Uh, we're not really at a place where the water was um, that dramatically different going back a few hundred years. Okay. Well, but again, uh, it does, it's irrelevant anyway. Yeah. But I did find relevant corroborations. For example, researchers have pointed out many old triangular holes cut into boulders along riverways leading yeah. towards yep. Uman's farm, right? And 14th century Norse seafarers were known to favor triangular mo- mooring holes, weren't they? Well, I mean, the mooring holes, um, um, I don't like to call them mooring holes. I like to call them stone holes. And the Mm. reason for that is that when you say mooring hole or mooring stone, you're implying an interpretation, which might not be correct. And in this Ah. case, it's not correct. Right. So I prefer a more just factually descriptive term like stone holes, because Mm. in some cases, these stone holes could be used for mooring. In some cases, they could use be used for surveying. They could just be simply marking routes that are part of a tradition that a certain group of people would understand mm. where to put them and when to put them. The other thing is the depth of the holes, the angle of the holes. Um, there's all kinds of uh, things that, that they could do to convey into information to those that knew what to look for. Right. But um, what they can't get away from is that not far north uh, of this, where the stone was discovered, and 27 years prior to it, an old fire steel identical to medieval Norse specimens, which you can find in Oslo University Museum, emerged from deep beneath the bank of the Red River. Right. So, so that's very interesting. And there have been some other, you know, artifacts like, axes and uh i think oh there's a whetstone and 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 a couple of other other metallica objects but one of the issues with with those objects and you know we have to be fair and honest about things if we want to stay credible and that is is that once a person picks it up out out of their field or out of the ground it's out of context and unless they photo documented picking it up like people do with arrowheads these days and, and other things they find in the ground, you know, like um, metal people that metal detect, um, you know, you have to be honest about this whole context. And unless you can prove something came from someplace, it really gets hard to to be able to use it. And yeah, yeah. and unfortunately, that's been the case with a lot of these metallic objects. Now, the runestone was seen by, you know, over a dozen people shortly after it was discovered. The uh, Olaf and his two sons were were right there, so there is a uh, a relatively clean archaeological context for the stone. But for some of these other objects, unfortunately, there is not. Mm. 
But we have the internal evidence, and that's where we're going to go now, because right. um, there is this medieval rune called the dotted R, which was yeah. not known to scholars prior to 35, which was found on the runestone. And I want you to tell us the significance of its presence, and also, you know, if you could address the secret dating method, which I think is super important especially yes. if this is a land claim you've made a big deal about this being a land claim yep. and, uh, and people won't understand why until you explain now well okay well first off let's start with the dotted r and i think what's really important here a point i want to make that unfortunately um kind of fizzled out because of personal reasons between myself and and the two linguists that I work with very closely professor henrik williams and, and richard nielsen and what what was really fantastic about this collaboration between the three of us was uh, it was really a collaboration of two different, completely different disciplines that when working together, were able to find these key pieces of evidence that, that essentially answered all the questions on the Kensington Roomstone. Now, the questions that I'm talking about were generated initially by me because one of the things I did shortly after I got started on the runestone was I generated a photo library of the entire inscription. And I took uh, what I did was take both high angle and low angle reflected light images of every single man-made character, word separator, number, Latin letter, everything. Hmm. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to create a record so that people, if they wanted to, could study what each of these characters were because I had heard that at one point there was some confusion as to what some of the letters were. So I thought this record would be important. But what happened is as I started to take those photographs, I started to find strange things, other man-made marks that um, did not um, fit with um, what, I, you know, what was previously known, like, punch marks that were added on and adjacent to some of the carved lines, short strokes, little short lines going across the vertical stave or just to the right of the vertical stave. And they were clearly man-made. I didn't know what they were. So what I did is I put them in a separate folder and I let the experts figure it out. Right. Mm. And there were a couple of really important things that came out of that. One of them was something called uh, the word har. Now, on the split side of the stone, on line 10, or the first line on the side of the stone, is the word har, which was interpreted to mean uh, have 10 men by the sea with our ships. The problem with har was it was considered to be a modern Swedish word. And in fact, a Norwegian word. Or Swedish word. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, also a Norwegian word. It's the same word. Oh, okay, okay. But it was, yeah, it was, it was a modern word. Mm. And that was a problem. And that was that was the number one um, linguistic problem with the Kensington runestone for a century. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that happened is when I did my uh, photo study, I documented the presence of two dots um, above the hooked X rune in the word har, mm. H-A-R. And, of course, the hooked X is being used for the letter A within the inscription. And I remember Dick came back to me when he went through that folder and he said, Scott, he said, are you sure there's two dots above this A in this word? And I said, absolutely. I said, look at it. 
clearly they're man-made. And he said, well, do you know what this means? I said, no, It means it becomes a new word. <laughs> What's that? It means it becomes a new word. It, it, and, I, and I said, no, I don't know what it means. He said, well, this is not har. It's no. hair. Yes. There are 10 men by the sea with our ships. And that's an old Swedish word. Uh, again, it's the same in Norwegian. Oh, it is. Okay. Mm. Well, there you go. And so, um, you know, I, I did not know anything about that. Nobody had seen those two dots previous to me, which quite frankly was a surprise because once you know they're there, you can see them. They're obvious. But they were worn down more than the A itself? Well, one of them is kind of riding into the hook mm. in the dot. But, but there's, you know, I did 3D imaging on all of these questionable characters and you can see it's a separate tool mark that's deeper than the hook so mm -hmm. um clearly it was a double punch now um again i didn't know what that meant i just documented it and and then it was interpreted and suddenly the, the one you know piece of linguistic evidence that they'd been beating the runestone up with the, uh, for a hundred years was gone mm -hmm. so now what do you do right mm -hmm. well the, the the ironic thing is this is this was important for another reason because professor henrik williams also agreed with dick and said yeah that's 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 uh um, you know that's not a modern swedish word anymore and those two wrote a paper and essentially henrik williams wrote in his portion he said the discovery of these two dots and changing this word from a modern word to an old world suddenly means now that the runic inscription of the kensington runestone should be restudied mm. he didn't say it proved that it was medieval He said it needs to be restudied. Yeah, as a careful scholar, that's how he has to word it. But uh, well, I mean, I mean, it's obvious that the case, the skeptical case, has vanished uh, after this big change it's gone. because the yeah, meaning changes too, right? Pardon me. The meaning changes too. Yeah, well, it's it does change slightly. So, um, but in any case, what happened to Professor Henrik Williams is when that paper was published. The, the president of the university at, the, at Uppsala uh, called him into his office and he said, Professor Williams, if you have time to study the Kensington runestone, you have time for additional administrative duties. Jesus. And he was punished for three years. Oh, my God. I remember sitting in his office when he was down in the dumps and he told me that. And, you know, it just underscored, you know, to me the politics and, and the, you know, the, the, the BS yeah. that's going on within the academic community. Uh, so, in part one, uh, the two of us dissed, but uh, well-deservingly, you know, the, the problems of academia uh, today. And this goes to underscore the fact that there is a reason why it has to be left to the likes of Hancock and Boval and you and like independent scholars has to deal with this uh -huh. uh, with the fringe themes. Why? Because the gatekeepers of the official narrative yeah. are vulnerable. They are not in a position unless they are like Robert Chuck, where they are tenured. Right. But even tenured professors, they try to get rid of if they yeah. stray too much off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So no. And, and I, you know, I really take offense to the word fringe. I mean, it's like it's like calling a person um, a nutcase. Yeah. It's like calling a woman a whore or, yeah. you know, a, a disparaging word to dehumanize somebody to justify persecution. Yeah. You know what? Frontier is better. You, you're the frontier.
Yeah, fringe is a to me is a negative connotation. I agree. And 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 it and it instantly to most people means that person's not credible. And yeah. and and I, I I I take offense to that. I mean, I especially when the people that have called me that yeah are not credible, and I feel like I am. I <laughs> yeah, mean, it's yeah. like are you kidding me? You know, no, I want to go over there and I want to slap him in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they have so many sneaky terminology yeah, that they yeah, use yeah. deliberately. They also use words like clandestine. Clandestine, yeah. Clandestine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's it and it's not uh, it's clearly intentional and it's it's designed to undermine a person's credibility and it's BS mm. and I'm not going to stand for it. I mean mm. it's not it's it's not the way to have um productive discourse and it's you know you got to just nip it in the bud but in any case um so har was really a big deal and um you know i can't underscore it uh, enough but the dotted r was another another one of these strange things that um was so important and really was the the uh the silver bullet if you will that that solved the kensington <laughs> runestone runologically hmm. and that was um this was another strange dot that I found in the top uh, loop of one of the R's on line six in the word var uh, were we were fishing one day and what's interesting about this is there's a little more to the story because on line one you'll notice that there is the word north one day's journey north from this stone yeah. uh, N-O-R-R is the way it's spelled and if, if you look closely at the upper loop of the second R in the word nor, north, the plateau of rock has been blown away because somebody tried to put a dot in the middle of the upper loop and they hit it with too much force and it, you know, it destroyed that plateau of rock. Now, when you go to line four, um, you have the word, or excuse me, that first word was north men, N-O-R-R-M-E-N. Yeah. On line four, you have the word north. It's the exact same word, N-O-R-R. Yeah, we still use that word. In Norwegian, we refer to us not as Norwegians, but as Norman, which is exactly oh, really? the same. Yes, it's the same word. Okay. Well, anyway, um, <clears throat> so w if you look closely at that second R, there is no dot or anything in the upper loop, but there is a very pronounced, obvious dot between the legs on the lower part of the second R which indicates to me that there's something about putting a dot in that second R that's important. And because they had the problem with the upper loop on the first attempt, they decided to put it between the legs to indicate some type of a change in, in the sound. And, and what I, you know, what I came to learn was uh, in medieval times, the language was coalescing yeah. and, um, And so to, to indicate different sounds or different ways of saying certain runes, they would put modifiers on it like a dot or a short stroke. In this case, the palatal R was uh, designated with a loop in the, or with a dot in the upper loop of the R. Now, I think what happened is they had a problem on, on the first attempt and the second attempt, they put it between the legs. But on the third dotted R, which is on line six in the word var, Um, instead of putting it between the legs, they put it back where they wanted to put it, but instead of hitting it hard, they hit it with less force, so it made a much shallower dot than the dots we typically see in the inscription.
But clearly it's man-made. It's in the right spot, in the right word, and and it, and it works. It's consistent with medieval practice. Yeah, but now the that, big deal is they didn't know this. Well, right? now I, I'm getting to that. Yeah. So that in itself is great. Yeah. But what really makes it important beyond everything else is that the dotted R was unknown to modern scholars mm. until 1935 when they found two different examples or four different examples on two artifacts. One was a grave slab, uh, grave slab at Ukna Parish. The other was a bone that had a large inscription, uh, a long inscription carved on it that also contained two dotted R's. Mm. And that was published in 1938 for the first time um, in modern history, the world knew about the dotted R. Mm. Well, that begs the question, how did the dotted R get on the Kensington runestone in 1898 if it mm. wasn't known until 1935? Exactly. I mean, that that is something you can't argue and explain away. It, it, it basically proves all by itself that little tiny dot Yep. proves yep. that Kensington runestone is medieval all by itself. Yep. And it's it's just astounding, in my opinion. Mm. And I have to, you know, we touched this in, in part one, so we'll not make too much a big deal about it. But I have to, sure. uh, you know, point out the obvious fact for those who ignore hard science like geology and cling desperately to linguistics, that mm -hmm. they are at fault here because... I said in part one that the Black Plague came in the 1349-1350. And the interesting thing, and we learned this as children in school even, uh -huh. that in Norway, and, and also the same would partly be true for Sweden too, is that the language was in super fluctuating. Not, not only is Norwegian the most varied language uh, in the world compared to the population, but it also was the 1300s in super much change. We basically imported Danish right. during the, uh, the 1300s and the 1400s and ended up going away from the Old Norse, which is closer to Icelandic, ending up with more like uh, uh, Danish. Oh, and that right, means that right. the words written down in that period not only didn't adhere to strict grammar, because that... <laughs> they never did in ancient times anyway. But in addition, there would be so many variations possible just because of the times, uh, the, because the Black Plague killed off the literate class. Yeah. And in addition, when you have Gothlanders from uh, uh, the island Gothland and Norwegians, they were forced to relate to uh, a common terminology. And all this kind of makes the runestone very vulnerable and special because that means that Whoever of this company were charged to write down stuff, they were having to, uh, in a specific case, they were having to uh, deviate more than probably you'll expect to find in, let's say, local Norwegian runestones of the time. You see what I mean? Yeah, right. Well, it, you know, in, in the medieval stones, well, you know, one of the things that, that sticks out to me and I wrote about this in my new book. And actually, I can I can send you a PDF version of it so you can have yeah. it right away. Yeah. But I, I laugh, you know, I laugh at people like Professor Henwick Williams, who, who, who tries to argue that linguistics is a science <laughs> and that he understands scientific method and that it can be applied linguistically and runologically to things like the, the runestone. And. He, 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 he's first of all, he's dead wrong. I mean, it's not a, a scientific process. This is as much of an art as anything else. Yeah. But 
I can I can tell you from the get go that he doesn't know what he's talking about because, you know, immediately what he, what basically the argumentation that the runologists make is they say, oh, the Kensington runestone has runes, therefore it is a runestone, and be, once you say that it we call it a runestone, then it has to suddenly conform to this, 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 and this, right? Mm -hmm. To the standard that we have set for what constitutes a runestone. And that is fundamentally flawed from the get-go because what you're doing is you're trying to tell something what it's supposed to be, and if it doesn't fit, then somehow there's something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And that is just a basic fundamental flaw from the very start because when you, when you look at a, a question like this, you don't make any assumptions, you don't start by telling it what it's supposed to be. You just record information. You document the facts and you allow it to tell you yeah. what it is. Yeah. That is the fundamental flaw of their of their investigation. And, and to sit there and try to argue and convince people that you're a scientist and that you can apply scientific method when from the very get-go you screw it up <laughs> in the yeah. way that you approach it. Um, is is laughable to me, but but the world just doesn't understand this, right? And they think these guys, because they're PhDs, um, and I'm a lonely, lowly forensic scientist, um, that somehow they, you know they're right and I'm wrong. Yeah, but it, it's boiled down to the weakness of the subject matter itself that they are PhDs in, because um, it has to be an interpretation art when so much data is lacking. Yes. If they had all the recorded words ever uttered since the dawn of mankind, if they had that neatly stored in a computer in a database, written words, or words, everything, they had like the Akasha Chronicle, as we say in spirit lingo, <laughs> then, it, okay, maybe we could make it into a science. But they... They have like, what do they have? One percent? Not even that. <laughs> so they can't assume to know. And you're right. You have to take the evidence and then develop a theory that the evidence forces, yeah. which they haven't done. But you kind of did that with the hooked X. But before we go there, you, okay. you were supposed to tell us about the secret dating method, which oh, is important yeah. for a land claim. The Easter table dating code. Yeah, that yeah. was. That one I got to give uh, to Dick Nielsen. He was the one because, again, there were three different runes that had uh, marks on them that were singled out. Two of them were already known. They were quite well known. But the third one I found, and again, I didn't know what the hell it was, but in the very first symbol carved on the stone, which is the number eight, uh, which is in pentatic numbers, which are Arabic in origin, which begs the question, what is a, a Muslim numbering system doing on a, a Scandinavian runestone? Mm. Uh, yeah, that, that in itself is an interesting question, and the answer is obvious. But um, but this this there was a dot in this number eight in the second bar that apparently was singling it out. And these two other symbols or runes on the face side of the inscription, one in Skiar and the other one in Ilu on line nine, um, when you pull those out separately and you look at them um, from the standpoint of the possibility of maybe their codes uh, that were meant to be used to plot on the uh, medieval Easter table, only worms. Uh, middle, medieval Easter table from 1314. Uh, what, what, something incredible happens. 
And basically, um, dating, one of the ways that they dated things, I know they did this all over Gotland because I saw it all over the place, mm. um, inscribed on bells, carved over doorways and churches. And, and uh, what they would do is date things by um, this e- Easter table dating method. And what they would use is they would take the 19-letter futhark at the time, or the alphabet, the runic alphabet, and they would pull out one letter from the first seven characters, which they called the Sunday letters. And then the rest of the 12 uh, runes in the alphabet were what they called golden years. And then you would apply those to this Easter table. But to, but to get a date, you need one more thing. You need a column number. Well, if this eight that seems to be singled out is the number we use and we plot the L, which is perfect for for a golden year, the U in Ilu, which is singled out, which is perfect for a Sunday letter, and the number eight, and we put them on the Easter table, which has over 500 years on it. Mm-hmm. Guess what date we get? 1362. Uh, two. Yeah, 1362, the mm. exact number that's carved on the Kensington runestone. So what it appears is going on is that the monk encoded the same date that's carved on the inscription using the medieval Easter table dating practice consistent with that time period. And, you know, the question becomes, why did they do that? Well, yeah, why doubly write it? Both, both covertly and overtly. Yes, and and the overt way, you know, you could easily change the date by adding another stroke Mm. to any one of the numbers that are on that stone. For example, there's three horizontal bars in the second number, which is three in 1362. Well, if you added another stroke below the third line, suddenly you've added 100 years, right? Right. Well, guess what? Can't do it because they protected the date from alteration by encoding the same date again within the inscription um, using a practice consistent with the time. And that begs the question, why was the date so important? Well, as you brought up earlier, I've made the claim for a long time that it is indeed a land claim, Mm -hmm. which would explain perfectly why the Templars came to North America after they had been persecuted to establish a new home, a new sanctuary, but they chose to come halfway across the continent Well, I think that was because they wanted to make a claim of a large geographic area, if not the entire continent. But in fact, what the runestone says is eight Goss and 22 Northmen on this acquisition business or taking up land from Vinland, which is the east coast, the northeast coast of North America. Yeah, I I have some new data points there I want to discuss with you later, but go on. The data point, I think, is the Newport Tower. Right. Because I think they're they're contemporaneous. So that's on the northeast coast, far to the west. Well, I would say, you know, at least to Kensington, that's half the continent right there. So Yeah, so they already had claimed the east coast. We know this not just the whole east coast, right. Yeah, no not just because of Vikings having traveled there 
for so many hundred years. But also, you know, the Sinclair journals shows that the Templars continued. Yes. But the interesting, the real interest, and it's so Templar of them to put in a secret code. Yeah, put right? it that way. <laughs> but the interesting thing I learned from one of your shows in American on Earth, I'd learned something I didn't know, and most people probably don't know it, and that is that back in these days, this was the common practice to put down claim stones. Oh, yeah. They even did it uh, far into modern times. You know, the the explorers, you, you were talking about how the French probably tried to rob some some land from yeah. uh, USA. You know, so this was a well-established practice. Put down a stone, a date, and a claim. And then you have it. And yeah. I have to add, Richard Nielsen, he determined an internal date of 1401 from one of the main artifacts, runic texts. And, 14, and 1402. And 1402. And dated after, the same way. Dated the exact same way. Exactly. Right. And this corroborates because after that, archaeologists uncovered the remains of a Norse-style sod building close by, which was carbon dated to when? Right. 1405 AD, which, you know, it's not an exact science. It can be plus minus. Spirit. You're talking about spirit pond. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this is the same case. Well, the runestones, uh, a spirit pond runestones may have been dated earlier. A few years earlier than when when uh, you know they established those longhouses there, but but you know like you said C14 data there's a plus or minus error yeah. fact. I mean they're basically spot on. They they, yeah. they match right exactly. Yeah, and if anyone is wondering how would Vikings be involved with Templars, uh, I just have to clear that little historic bit up too. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, because the Vikings were renowned. I mean, today they have a bad rap as pirates and brutes, which is kind of changing due to new science. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, but but they were fearsome warriors when they were in war, and they were very popular. For example, the Byzantine emperor hired in his vanguard. He preferred hiring Vikings, and many Vikings went into the Crusades, and through there they encountered the Templars. And we know there were. There's even one of the most popular. Novels in Sweden is about a Swedish Templar. Okay. So that we know there were many, many Templars who were Scandinavians. And by the way, in Bergen, that I've told before, we have old chapels because if Sinclair went to the West Coast, which he said in his diaries that he did, you know, King Mangus. Yes, he, yeah, and, he's, and he would um, regularly travel to Norway to meet with the king. Because yeah. he had, you know, he was the Earl and he reported to the King yeah. and he spent a lot of time there. And he talks about visiting with explorers who had been to the Western lands that had returned to Norway. Yes. And here is some corroboration of that because the Cistensians are very important. You've pointed that out. Uh, they are like the spiritual baseline of the Templars. And I'll tell you. Uh, the book I'm, I'm sending you, which I said before in part one, claims that the first Christians here weren't Catholics. They were of the Celtic Church. Well, yes. in addition, we have Cistercians. They were one of the first. The oldest... Tyrannians. Pardon? Are you talking about the Tyrannians? No, uh, I, I'm pronouncing it badly, but Cistercians. Oh, Cistercians. Okay. Cistercians. So yeah. we have a cloister in Bergen, yeah. which is where they would go with their ships. That was the main port on the West Coast before they went to Iceland and Greenland and Vineland. Right. We have uh, uh, the light cloister. 
Lucy Cloister in Norwegian. This was founded in 1146 and it was in function all the way up to 1536, long after Sinclair and Company visited. In addition, right. we have um, Nonneseta Chapel which lived between 1130 and 1507. And the interesting stuff there is that it was taken over by the now defunct Hospital Brothers of St. Anthony. And who were they? Well, incidentally, they were founded in Egypt, just like the Celtic Church, which had pagan uh, roots from Egypt. And it fused with the Knights of Malta. In 77, ah. 77, so they don't exist anymore. But those took over the cloister when the Cistercians were closed down. So we see here a theme of the same kind of circles having yeah. the main spiritual uh, land positions in the west coast of Norway all the way through 1300s and 1400s when your people, the Templars, were so active here. So it's not outrageous if anyone thinks that, oh, Vikings and Templars, that's completely different. No, they are uh, of the same ilk because yes, Norway yes. was very late to be Christianed. And uh, in the in the Sinclair journals, they talked about how they were honoring the triple goddess and how he was learning about Norse gods. Well, I can corroborate that too because yeah. in Scandinavia, because we were so late to be Christian, and like I said, the first Christians weren't even Catholics. They were much more liberal Celtic church. Well, aspects of Norse and Sami, as well as Norse and Inuit cultures, have overlapped. In Norway, Norse and Sami, Sami, for the people who doesn't know, is our natives. They're pretty much like uh, the Native American Indians. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, the Inuit in Greenland, uh, they, they reflect the diversity of belief systems when they were coexisting, because they had uh, uh, both in, in the original Norse sagas. You can see, for example, the Greenland sagas attest to coexistence of indigenous pagans and Christian beliefs within the Norse society. Eric saga, uh, this, uh, Eric the Red, Eric Roda, transmitted the most well-known and extensive descriptions of a shamanic seder, yep. which is a ritual performed by a volva, which is a prophetess, that bears resemblance to those practiced by Samis and indigenous Siberian people, or people some are marked as others throughout the Norse texts. So many famous accounts of these interactions survive in the Wienlag sagas, the Groenlander saga, and Eric the Red saga. And if they did this in Norway itself, obviously they would do it all over the place. They would, like you say, oh, they befriended the Indians. Well, small wonder, right? They did it with the Greenlanders. Sure, there was some conflict in the beginning, especially. There were uh, some fights between not just Inuits, but also American natives. But that was all the way back. But when they became Christians, because they were Celtic Christians, even more they had this parallel practice going on where they would... And I told you about these lodges that were commemorating Norse traditions all through the 1300s. So all this stuff is, I think, small nuggets of information that substantiates the claims made in the Sinclair journals that if it was a forgery, how on earth would the forgers know these subtle points, right? Everything matches. And and that, that is really what I think pushes them over the edge. It's... It's, you know, the dev- they say the devil's in the details, or yeah. the truth is in the details. And we're talking about little nuggets of information that are just not, not known 
um, in, in multiple different fields. So it's like, where do you get somebody that has such a knowledge base, a deep knowledge base in all these different areas? It's, there mm. is nobody that has that. So now you're talking about a group of people and, you know, the more you add to this so-called cabal uh, working behind the scenes to create this fake document for, <laughs> for what reason, right? Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense and really speaks to the, the uh, authenticity of these documents and, and the incredible history that they contain, which, you know, admittedly, Al, you know, I'm rooting for the journals and the CDOC and all of this more than anybody because it corroborates everything I've done for the last 20 years. And on, on one hand, you could make the argument that I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm horribly biased in support of these documents. But on the other hand, um, I, I know the research we've done is solid. The, the facts have lined up. Everything is fitting together. And these things slide in and fill in so many holes so beautifully. Yeah. Um, I, I just, yes, I would love it. I, there's nothing I would love to see more. But I would certainly call out the problems if I could find them. I just can't find them. And, and so I, I, it's really, it's really working out well right now, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's your prerogative to be in favor or be biased towards this because you're the one who is having this stuff. So you have to develop a sympathetic theory and then the criticists have to try to find holes in it. Uh, of course, you have to do it too, but well, I mean, absolutely. as long as you go with the evidence, the, um, that's what you have to do. That's scientific. You have to try to see how can these be, be authentic. Absolutely. And now we come to the, the jewel in the crown, so to speak, because what seriously was unknown until I think you cracked the case was the whole hooked X phenomenon. So yeah. I guess we could just move on to that because that is kind of that is kind of the canary in the <laughs> mine. <laughs> canary in the coal mine. Coal yeah. mine that tells the whole story, right? Well, I, I think it really sort of brings it full circle. Yeah. You know, the the um, one of the things that happened as we were going through all this, and you know, we found these dots and har and the dotted r and 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 the the dating code, and of course the Grail code is another one, right? Yeah. Um, the first four letters that are singled out by the carver are G R A L, and in medieval old Swedish, they spell Grail. Uh, also in modern uh, Norwegian and Swedish. Okay, so there you go. Um, mm. Consistency yet again. But yep. you know, and and then linguistically, runologically, we're, we you know, I went to Sweden five times because we wanted to look at really what was an untapped database. And I think it's important for people to understand because I get the question a lot of times, well, how the hell could you, who was, you know, roughly educated by these scholars about runes, dialect, grammar, and dating, um, how could you go over to Sweden and find these things in their backyard that they live right there? I mean, how come they didn't know about this stuff? Well, um, it's a great question. And the answer is there's a reason. And the reason is, is that there is a treasure trove of runic, medieval runic inscriptions on the island of Gotland, primarily on grave slabs, most of them mortared into the floors and walls of the churches, of the 99 churches on the island, of which I went to all 99 of them. Oh, geez. And I did. I did. I'm just, look, I'm anal retentive. And so I, 
And once I got to a certain point, I said, screw it. I got to just do them all, you know? Yeah. And and I'm glad I did because I can say that I did, you know? And, and this was Cistercian territory, right? Pardon, sister, all Cistercian, every yeah. one of them, every one of them. Mm. Now, at the time, I didn't understand the significance. I certainly do now. But um, in any case, um, we found everything. We found all the language, the dialect, the grooves, the runes, the grammar, all these features were consistent uh, with the 14th century and everything on the runestone was consistent with that database. Now, the reason that the scholars had not seen this material is because it was the last place in Scandinavia that they studied the runic inscriptions of Sweden. And they only started publishing those papers in the early 2000s. Wow, that was even after you started this journey. Yeah, I mean, they were. I remember they were publishing them even after I had gotten back. You know, yeah. so so they didn't have the information, and I just happened to be there at the right time. So it's not like I'm some brilliant guy. It was a it was a function of timing. But mm. believe me, if 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 in the years since, and you know, it's been 15 years since I was last there. If if the scholars could could have, you know, proven me wrong. I'd have heard about it by now, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, everybody would. Oh, believe me, they would have been <laughs> shouting at the They would have right? seized that, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> but yeah. anyway, the point is, is that that really settled all of the, the language, runes, dialect features. But there was still one thing that was missing that I did not find on the island of Gotland. And that was the hooked X. And, you know, here was one of the big mysteries that, was one of the pieces of evidence that also, you know, proved that the runestone was a hoax. And that was this crazy looking X character with the hook in the upper right arm being used for the letter A. And um, it just, it, it, it doesn't look anything like the standard uh, runic um, E rune or A rune, excuse me. And it was a mystery and nobody could figure it out. Well, I, I, I remember the first time I found one, actually Janet found it, in, in a different place other than the known hooked axes, um, you know, that were on these five North American runestones. At one point, that was the only place they, they had turned up. We can't find them in the record, in the, the runic record in, in Scandinavia, so there's something wrong, right? Well, the first one I found was at Roslyn Chapel. Mm. And it was carved on a pillar inside uh, the nave of the church, uh, right next to the altar. And it, it's a slightly different version, but it is definitely a hooked axe. And my God. But, but that's super important because uh, what you do, you not only do you find it in Europe, but you find it exactly at the spot where the usual suspects are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then and then um, the next one that we found was in uh, Columbus's sigla. He started using a hooked X in his uh, signature or sigla. It's more of a symbol. It's not his name written out. It's a series of letters with lines and, and a sword symbol and dots, just like we have on the runestone, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that it's no question it's a hooked X. And this guy was, um, you know suspected to be a member of the order of christ which was a post put down order of uh of, of templars that actually 
survived the the, uh, the put down in 1307 and existed as an official Templar order in Portugal until 1835 for over 500 years after the put down. Hey, let's yeah, let's dwell. Let's take a little short uh, detour and dwell a little upon this because okay. I have some uh, points I want to discuss with you about Columbus and that. So we just take that now and then we go back to the hooked X. Sure, let's because go. first off, the yes, Templar survived in Portugal, but I've uh, looked into the history of the Order of Christ and it was very soon degenerated. In other words, oh, they didn't, okay. the real Templars didn't manage to keep control of it for a long while. Now, I've been trying to make sense of Columbus' part in this because yeah. on the one hand, he's obviously privy to information like we know he got stuff from Byzantinian sources and, of course, from the Northwestern Islands. Sinclair's. Yes, Sinclair's and, and the, even the Vikings that uh, predated Sinclair. But, you know, on the other hand, he's not a really nice person, Columbus. And no, he was a jerk. He was a bastard. So I have a theory I want to uh, air with you, and I, I'm curious what you think about it. Okay, Because yeah, this cool. theory was coming to me while I was reading Great. and researching also your stuff. Because you uh, mentioned Per Liljestrom to me in part one, which was Tor Heyerdahl's companion uh, at the end when they wrote books about this. And yeah. Per Liljestrom, he offers some very interesting information because it's it's not very known, but Columbus admitted in a letter to his son to have visited Iceland in February 1477. And from the bishop there and other learned men, he was informed that their people had discovered Greenland, Haluland, Markland yeah. and Vineland yep. beyond the Western Ocean and that Vineland seemed to extend southward indefinitely. No, this isn't the big deal. The big deal is this. I'm going to, in the in the post-commentary of this interview, I'm going to inform people about the Greenland mystery. I don't see a reason to spend time with you on it because that robs important time we have to discuss the hooked X. Sure. But... An interesting point about the Greenland mystery is uh, so many people disappeared, especially from the Western part, especially women. And Pierre Liljestrom and Torhele claim that what Columbus did was that he took them as slaves. Mm. He brought them back to his Catholic, whatever, to his uh, Mediterranean authorities and forced them to recount about the lands beyond the Western Sea. Okay. Now, the remainders of the settlements there fled to Vinland because, like I'm also going to tell people in the post-commentary, is how... Uh, the Nova, not, yeah, Nova Scotia, the, what's it called? The Med, uh, it's French. The Medewin? No, no, not the Medewin. The, the area where they lived in, uh, Nova Scotia. Med, it's a French word, uh, okay. where, where the ink starts. Lanceau or Meadow. Oh, Lanceau Meadows. Yeah. That wasn't Vinland. That was a ship colony. Yeah. It was used to, uh, it was a ship repair station and a waypoint for voyagers. It was a river, yeah, where they would get fresh water and reload supplies and exactly. kind of take a break after they had crossed the North Atlantic. Exactly. And they didn't call it Vinland. We know what they call it. They call it Leif's Budir after Leif Eriksson who discovered it. So yeah. the, th the thing is, they fled down there. Now, here's the interesting theory I have. If Per Liljestrom is right, if he took these Norse people as slaves, because he was a big slaver, 
and uh, this might be a wild notion, but here's what I'm uh, thinking. He gets okay. all this information. He has like a foot within some fragmented Templar heritage, but he's not like a real, he's not like a, you know, Jesus and Mary and all that. He's not a heretic like that. Yeah. But he, he has enough information to know something's up. So why did he sail with the Templar flags on his ship? I think because he had all this information, I think he thought or expected or feared the possibility that he would encounter a Templar state on the East Coast because right. there were numerous attempts to establish, not just the Sinclair journals. Uh, we have also from Viking sources so many uh, attempts to establish colonies there. Hundreds yes, of people went over throughout these years. Uh, and you know uh, also from the Sinclair journals and uh, uh, La Croma document that they did this. Yep. So I think he, he couldn't know what was awaiting him. So he went there like in full boosting Templar motors, right? Yeah. And then when he lands and he sees there's nothing here, just some, some, uh, and he was a racist. So he, he thought, oh, some low life natives. Then is when they went amok and started to, oh, yeah. because in the beginning they were uh, cautious and careful. But when they were sure there was nothing here, they started to rob they took slaves. Oh, that's they right. They went all the way back. Look oh, right, what we got right. for you. Okay, now I understand. So, okay, so what you're saying... This is my theory. Yeah, I think, so just in a nutshell, the reason he was flying the, the, the Templar cross on his ships is so if he did happen to encounter the Templars, he would play that game. Exactly. And, and be welcomed. But when that didn't happen... And he realized that they weren't there. All bets were off. Then he yeah. could do what he wanted and be the, exactly. the pillaging, you know, a-hole that he was. Yes. Yep. So uh, because he had access to all this information, he would expect yep. to find Templars there. Yep. He would not have been at all surprised. No, that's an interesting theory. And it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, mm. the natives, it's not going to mean anything to the natives in from his perspective, although I think it probably did mean something to them. But he, he did it for a different reason. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. I like that. Cool. I, I think I think the natives further north would have more meaning from these flags than. I mean, he ended up very south. He didn't exactly yeah. know where to go either. He, I don't think he was an initiate. I think he was someone who managed to collect info, initiatic info, through his different sources, marrying into the Sinclairs, right. uh, accessing the remnants of the Order of Christ because that was degenerated at that point already. Well, yeah, and he did not practice the spiritual side um, exactly or even the even the outward practical side of conducting himself uh as a member of the order he was he was a greedy uh you know i mean one of the documents where we found more hooked x's was in uh his uh what he called his book of privileges yeah. where he in 1406 or 1506 he wrote down shortly before his death everything that that he was entitled to, that he was owed for his services on his four trips. And, you know, he was so concerned with money and wealth and property. Could, could, could he have gleaned something from the Sino brothers? Um, maybe, maybe, possibly. Yeah, he could have. Mm. Because we know that uh, Antonio eventually went back, I think. But he was with um, Sinclair on the journey. We yeah. got a lot of information about the Zeno brothers in the next books, which have not been published yet. 
Okay, we'll talk about that then. Let's get back to the hooked axe then. Okay. You did find specimens of it in the Narragansett stone and the three spirit pond well, stones. The Narragansett runestone has one. There's there's three runestones in North America, three different places where five runestones have been found that have the hooked axe. The Kensington stone, the Narragansett runestone in Narragansett Bay, and then the Spirit Pond runestones, three three stones found in a cluster together. Is the Narragansett stone the same that was featured in American on Earth, which is on yeah. the water? Yep, yep. It had many, many clear hooked axes. No, no, no. The Narragansett runestone only has one. The one you're thinking about is the Spirit Pond. has a whole bunch of hooked axes on it. Yeah, which is underwater, right? No, no. The one that went underwater is the Narragansett runestone. Oh, but okay. that only has one, one hooked X. But a very clear it only one. Has, yeah, very Oh, yeah. No, uh, unmistakable. It has nine total runes, um, seven on the top line, two on the bottom. And the first one is the hooked X on the second line. Yeah. And is that uh, acknowledged as a genuine, or are they claiming that to be a fake too? Because if that's a fake, it has to be uh, scuba divers. No, nobody's, <laughs> well, people are claiming, people are claiming it's a hoax without evidence. I've looked at it and I've determined the weathering is old. Yeah. So therefore it's, it's genuine. But to me, the hooked X is one of the powerful pieces of evidence that it is real. Yeah. And, you know, we can date that thing back at least a hundred years to when certain people were just kids and remember that stone back in the 1940s that are still with us today. So, But I, I think the, the really smoking gun here is that the hooked X is featured in just a specific, I mean, many people made runes, but this seems to be within a certain circle. Of, very tight circle. Right. Yes. And it seems to be, yes, Norse, but Cistercian and Templar connected Norse. And that all means that the hooked X has some kind of meaning that is special to them. And I think it's time to take that on. Well, and the other thing you're going to see in the new book is we found examples of hooked X in um, secret coded alphabets that were hidden in Iceland right. and that are now just being published online in the last few years. And colleagues of mine have brought them to my attention. And the other thing that we noticed is that the um, there is a connection with the hooked X to the Hebrew alphabet. Mm. That the straight line version of the uh, of the hooked X or of the of the Hebrew Aleph looks like a hooked X. Mm. And uh, funny, that's the first letter in the alphabet being used for for Aleph or A, the A sound, yeah. and it's being used for the A sound on the on the rune stones in North America. And I think that there is a tangible connection between the hooked X being used for the letter A and the Hebrew olive. And of course, once you start to make a connection to the Hebrew alphabet, now you're getting into things like the Kabbalah, <laughs> the Tree of Life, and some of the esoteric teachings that we know that the Templars were involved in. Yeah. And here again is another connection that only goes to the Templars and uh, that, that fits along with everything else. And in fact, in the Cremona document, as you have not seen yet, but you will in my new book, there are at least one, two, three, I'd say a dozen examples of the hooked X used in numbers um, and um, uh, pretty much in numbers, in, in uh, Roman numbers, which is um, 
not unusual. They're only used once within these numbers, and it's, I think, to emphasize the importance. It's a sacred symbol that has multiple, it has multiple practical uses. One is as a letter or a sound, the other is as a number. Um, but it also is just a standalone symbol that represents uh, the ideology of these people, the, the whole concept of monotheistic dualism and emphasizing the feminine aspect of the Godhead, which was vitally important to the Templars, which was vitally important to the Native Americans and was the core of their relationship. That, and the that, Celtic that, Church, um, mind you. Well, it is the Catholic Church, but they don't emphasize the feminine. No, no, the Celtic, uh, the Celtic Church also has Celtic a, Church yeah. for sure, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So there again, you see this consistency um, that goes into the use of this sacred symbol, um, which really was uh, probably above everything else. Uh, symbolize the essence of their ideology and why it was so important and so sacred. And to put a hook on the X um, was was also used um, as a plea of protection mm. uh, to safeguard and uh, protect these documents, um, which includes not just the documents in the Cremona document, but we also see numerous hooked X's in the journals. Yeah, but. The runestones are documents too. The the Kensington yeah. runestone is a written document, yeah. and it was a very sacred document. and And they used the hooked X in the Kensington runestone twenty two times. Wow! And that number twenty two is also a sacred number in the Kabbalah right. and on the runestone. And it's and 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 to they used confirmation codes within the inscription. It's not a coincidence. There are twenty two hooked X's in the inscription, and there are, you know, eight Goths and 22 uh, Northmen. Um, and, and it just goes on and on and on, the levels of code and symbolism and, and um, you know, meanings that are, that are hidden within the Kensington inscription. It is just incredible. It, it, it indicates it has to be temperance because we know they did stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. This is, these are the guys that did this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they had, you look, everything fits, right? They mm -hmm. had the means, the money, the motivation. It all fits. And of course... Um, but, but, but you must be giving credit for something because um, there is, from all this, there is one uh, unavoidable conclusion. And, and you're the one who blew that lid. And that is that we know why they fled. We know why yeah. they were crushed. Yeah. They had a heresy, right? Yeah. And... Uh, this heresy connects to Jesus and Mary. And, and, and before people freak out and invoke Dan Brown, remember, he didn't invent anything. He just took a popular, uh, like, for, for example, we have uh, the famous uh, 1982 book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, right? Yep, yep. Uh, so, so it's nothing new here. It's just that he popularized it. And because it became a novel and a movie and everything, nobody takes it seriously anymore. But the thing is, that's what they usually do in, in, in fiction. They take stuff from reality and they make a good story out of it. And in reality, which is always better than fiction, yeah, we have an ancient old tradition that is connected to the Templars, not just the Templars, but among else the Templars, that says, well, you can say it. It's your discovery. Well, it, Jesus and Mary were married. They had children and their children had children and their descendants um, 
are alive today and walking on the planet. And, you know, it's in, in, in many Christians, you know, are obviously taken aback by this. And, you know, it, it, it goes against their, their beliefs. And that's their problem. I mean, I look at it this way. I say, look, every single person that is walking on this planet today, all seven plus billion people have ancestors that were alive 2000 years ago. Right. Mm. I mean, that's, that's a documented fact. Uh, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have descendants that were alive 2,000 years ago, every yeah. single one of us. Yeah. So why is it such a stretch to believe that these two people back then um, couldn't have had children that had children and, 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 and have descendants that are alive today? I mean, it's, it's, it's so simple. It's so, it's so easy. And but it's not just a theory. Absolutely. And, and it happened. It, I'm sorry, but it happened. Yeah, but but we found uh, facts corroborating this. They found a tomb yeah. with uh, the entire family names yeah, on it. Say nothing if their names are written on boxes and their bones yeah. were found in the Telpiat tomb. I mean, give me a break. Come on. Yeah. But how how is it connected to the X? That's the question. Well, that's really where this all comes full circle. Of course, we have really now at this point probably over a hundred examples of the hooked X on documents carved in stone, um, you know, carved into churches, into uh, various, I found it, my wife found one in, um, she's pretty good at finding them in churches, as it turns out, <laughs> one in uh, Santa Maria de Alabal Church in Tomar, Portugal, which is a Templar city, for God's sakes. That was oh, I thought it was poetic that it was uh, Sinclair who found it, but it was your wife who discovered it? It was my wife who found it. See, in the show, when you watch the show, and Janet is listening, hey, Jan, come here for a sec. <laughs> come here. Give her credit. We're talking about, remember we filmed the scene with Steve Sinclair at Tomar? And, and yeah, come here. So... Al watched that episode, and he was just commenting that he thought it was the Sinclair descendant who found it, and that's not what happened. The hooked X at Tomar. Yeah, Santa Maria de Alabal. But actually what happened, Al, is Steve, you know, finds it in, in the show, right? Mm. But in real life, when we were filming, we were we were. Right before, well, when I was filming scenes with somebody, Janet was looking at columns in the church, right? Mm. And you found that hooked X. And then what'd you do? I took a picture of it, and then I showed it to Maria, the producer, and I looked at her and I go, we just found our ending, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. She said, yep. Yep, and I said, I can't tell Scott, can I? And he, she said, nope, we're going to surprise him. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so, we, so we broke for lunch, right? Yeah, yeah. And they didn't tell me anything. And Janet and, and Andy and Maria and Conspired. Steve, everybody yeah, else yeah. knew but me, and they're kind of smirking around. That's but remember, nice. I was so dialed in because I was writing my, my final scene, right? I was mm. writing up what I was going to say. Mm. And... Um, I had to change it, of course, when, when Steve shows me the hooked X. But as soon as the scene was over and they yelled, cut, Steve goes, Scott, it wasn't me that discovered it. It was <laughs> Janet. Janet found it. <laughs> oh, but she wasn't a part of the show. Uh, you no, know. she wasn't. No, we couldn't no. write her in at that right. point. You know, we'd already right. yeah. established the story, so we, yeah. couldn't, we couldn't put her in it. But no. 
in real life, she was the one that found it. That's wonderful. So your reaction is genuine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I, mm. I'm like, what? You got to be kidding me. And mm. so I just vomited out that final diatribe. But I think it came across pretty well. Yeah, but you could see he, he, he was so eager to show you. He was like, no, come here, come here. Seriously, come here. He was so yeah, yeah, yeah. boiling over. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was because, I mean, it was... I know it makes sense. He's been carrying it for several hours, right? Well, yeah, or at least... A, no, it wasn't that long. It was probably... It was about two hours. It was about two hours. Okay. absolutely dying. I know you were. I was dying to tell you. I know, and then they told me, and I'm like, what? What? Janet? What? <laughs> And then I thought about it. I go, of course, the goddess has to find yeah, right. the big, the big ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. So it's yeah, still that poetic. Was, that, that was a lot of fun. That was one of the best moments we ever had making the show. Mm. But uh, of course, you argue in your books for the context of this entire thing, how it's all connected to uh, <coughs> the sorry, <coughs> the heresy, quote unquote, that yeah. they are bringing forward and it does make sense if they want to establish a Templar state in the east coast you would expect them to bake in these codes and and uh, yeah. and you know of course being a practicing esoterician you know that codes are not just a signal it's not just to give a message it's also a way to uh, commemorate the principles or to honor the gods or to manifest your right. it's like a magical act right yeah. Well, it's, you know, the other thing that I thought about with this was it would have been the sacred symbol that was unique only unto them. Yeah. And so, you know, the, 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 the dating, the, um, the confirmation codes, the grail embedded, the, you know, all those other things that are part of the runic inscription, um, Above all else, you know, you've got this hooked X that's woven throughout the entire inscription that nobody could make heads or tails of. And quite frankly, this is what confounded the scholars. This was one of the big items that they didn't know what to do with it. So they just mm. made it go away. But above all of that, at the end of the day, one of the biggest discoveries that I talk about in the new book that actually happened several years ago was once we you know, went public with the hooked X and we, we explained what we believed it to symbolize and who, who it was associated with. And the only ones it was associated with being the Templars and the Cistercians was, you know, how far does it go back? And then, you know, I tried, you know, I thought I made a pretty good connection with, you know, the crossed crook and the flail across the chest of Tutankhamun and his father, Akhenaten, Akhenaten, and um, symbolizing essentially the same ideology. But really, um, the most amazing discovery was when a, uh, a biblical uh, scholar and researcher, Charlie Pellegrino, had taken pictures of the lid of one of the ossuaries found in the Telpia tomb that you mentioned earlier. And it just so happened that this ossuary happened to be the one inscribed with the name Jesus, son of Joseph. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, and, and, and on the top was a symbol that they thought was a star symbol. And I don't know if you saw my, my blog post on this, but if you haven't, you have to go look at it because you'll see the symbol. And they sent it to me 
through another person that I knew that was a co-researcher with, with Charlie, uh, uh, Jerry Lutkin, on the Telpiot team. And they said, we think this is a star symbol, but you know a little something about symbolism. What do you think this is? And when I opened the pictures up, I mean, I nearly wet myself. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And I said, hey, guys, this isn't a star symbol. This is a monogram of two symbols, Mm. a hooked X and the Tau cross. And interestingly enough, and it's centered beautifully on the lid, like where you would put the name if they were to carve the name of, of the person in the box. But what was amazing is I further added, I said, look, the hooked X is also a straight line stonemason version of the of the Hebrew Aleph, which is the first letter in um, the Hebrew alphabet. And the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the Tau. And the Tau obviously also being uh, connected to Egypt, ancient Egypt. Yes, being connected to Egypt. It's connected to the, the Nilometer and all of that. The most important symbol in Egyptian iconography is the Ankh symbol, right? Mm. Which is a tau cross with an egg-shaped handle. And Incidentally, so what, meaning life, meaning which life. you could associate to birth, or, pregnancy. Or resurrection, right? Yeah, a new yeah. life, restored life. Yeah. Um, but what I said to him was, uh, what I think this is, is, is a monogram of two symbols, the hooked X and the tau cross, which are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, maybe it's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. And, and the sacred marriage. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it all fits and it's all connected to Jesus, right? And Mary. And Mary. Yeah. And she's right there, too, right next to him in the tell. Uh, which is why they would have a monogram of uh, representing both of them. Yeah. Uh, un- unified in one, which is the child now. You have made, I think it was in your show, but I've seen you explain the symbol, you know, how it could be representing this. It was in the the Narragansett Runestone episode when we Mm. were in the guy's house and we sat down and I went through the whole thing. Yeah. But, I mean, it's hard to do it without visuals, but could you just try to give it a a short? Yeah, I I wrote it down in in my notebook. I don't know if you saw that episode, but I actually wrote it down and I explained the whole thing. Yeah, I did. But I'm thinking for our listeners so they can get an idea of why the, why the hooked oh, X. Right, right. Yeah, well, you just take an X, the X symbol, and you chop it in half horizontally. And you create a V symbol on the top and you invert it 180 degrees and you have a peak symbol, um, which symbolizes the male. The V symbolizes the female. And then when you add the hook in the upper right arm of the V, um, you create another little V, which is a child, a daughter, mm. inside the womb of the big V or the mother. Mm. And according to, uh, to legend, um, at the time of the crucifixion, Mary Magdalene was pregnant with their daughter, Sarah. Mm. So um, you could make that connection or yeah. you could make the connection to the Holy Trinity which is, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I ask people in my lectures all the time, what's the Holy Spirit? And they kind of look at you and go, well, it's the Spirit in you. And I say, well, it really isn't well-defined, is it? And they kind of shake their heads like, yeah. And I said, well, this is the way I look at it. You've got the Father, 
you've got the child who's missing. Mm. Exactly. Suddenly it becomes obvious, doesn't it? Mm. It does. And uh, there's even one funny uh, uh, kind of uh, association too, which I don't think they were aware of. But you could also say it's the X chromosome married with the Y chromosome. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's been suggested many, many times. Oh, okay. And uh, although I haven't written about that, it's certainly plausible. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else we should muse about this part of the story before we move on to the ending here? Well, I think the only other thing that I would say is that this this whole uh, discussion about Jesus and Mary being married and the Da Vinci Code, which many people think is fiction, um, it is not fiction. It mm. is, in fact, historical truth. And one of the one of the pieces of evidence, I would argue that that supports that claim is in the Cremona document. And and just, just to reiterate, you know, the Templars found documents underneath the Temple Mount sometime between 1110 and 1118. This is, this, uh, there's a narrative describing this discussion or this discovery in Jerusalem by uh, three different authors that participated in the discussion in the Cremona document. Part of what they found were documents that talked about additional documents that had been hidden in the land of Antiora, which we now know as North America, but it was called back then. Six decades after the discovery of those documents in Jerusalem, a Templar knight by the name of Sir Ralph de Sutterly mounted an expedition um, to uh, the land of Antiora with the goal of recovering those documents that had been hidden there in the first century. Jesus. And, and wow. he was going to recover those in the la- latter part of the 12th century. Hmm. And he was successful in recovering some of those documents. He did not recover them all. But in the list of documents that he did recover in the 12th century that he brought back to Saborga, Italy, and um, gave his deposition, which is the second part of the Cremona document. Um, in front of then Grand Master Odon in 1180, one of the documents that he recovered was a copy of the marriage document of Yeshua uh, ben Yosef to uh, Miriam uh, Hasmonia of Cana. Wow. So one of those documents was the marriage document of Jesus and Mary Magdalene that had been hidden in North America for over a thousand years. And, and you know, some people think this is a big deal, of course, but some people think, why would this be a big deal? I mean, it's just two people marrying and getting a child. Let's explain that, because if such a document were brought to light by the Templars, it would crumble the huge power base that was the Vatican. The Catholic well, Church was on yeah. its peak in the medieval ages. They controlled everything yep. and they crushed everyone. So if this was known, the whole, it would undermine the whole dogma that even led to the schism with the Orthodox Church in the fa- first place, right? Yeah. And yep. so then Jesus isn't this vague ghost that they can abuse to excuse their power trips all over the place, then it suddenly gets nailed down to something specific. And it's even something specific that they themselves are not heritage to. Yeah. <laughs> they can't even hijack that and say, we are yeah, the I, ones. Yeah. Right? I mean, you look to the Catholic Church proof that 
Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and that, that Jesus was just a human being and not this divine entity, yeah. which is the, which is the very foundation of the, of the Roman Catholic church. I mean, this, this isn't something that could come out. It was, it was just unacceptable. Yeah. So, you know, this was high stakes. This was um, extremely dangerous information, especially at that time period. I mean, it's still frowned upon to this day by yeah, yeah. Uh, millions of people around the world. Yeah, you saw the reactions to the to the Don Brown story. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it was a big story for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is that it was such a controversial thing. But one of the reasons why I think it was so popular and resonated with people is because it felt like it was true. Exactly. That it made sense yeah. that this is how the world really works, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole story of fiction that was used to control the masses was one of the most destructive things that has ever happened in the history of humanity, in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't care who hears it. I don't give a, I, I, people need to hear it. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, now we're getting the evidence to, to support the notion that this was fiction, but this is the time it's supposed to happen. So mm, let yeah. it happen. Um, you know, and what I say to people too is look, Nobody likes to get bad news, right? Nobody wants to hear about awful things that happen, losing a loved one or, or whatever the case may be. But you know what happens after you get bad news? You're shocked, you mourn, and then you pull up your bootstraps and you move on with life. And the same thing will happen here. Hmm. Um, the world's not going to stop spinning. The truth is going to liberate a lot of people and give them strength. And, and and force them to look inward to maybe find another way to answer those big questions in life without the guilt and you know all the crap that goes with it and 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 I'm hopeful for that I know you are um, and and really it starts with bringing forth the truth and that's what we've been trying to do that's what we're going to continue to do and I don't care who doesn't like it um, Amen to that. Will set us all free. Yes, indeed. Amen. But you know, if they had any wits, the church, they would cease this story because they have become so completely irrelevant, not just practically and powerfully, but also spiritually. This could actually bring some meaning and interest back to the Christian uh, Christian tradition, basically, because this is what the original Christians themselves tried to. Uh, this was what it was all about. Have you read the Jesus documents by by one of these three authors of uh, the Holy Grail? Oh, um, by uh, Michael Badgett. Yeah, and um, uh, Henry Lincoln. Yeah, but you know, Jesus documents was, I think that was just his book, wasn't it? Bagan's book. I can't remember. You know, I haven't read that particular one. Oh, you should. That's probably the best any of them ever made. And okay. he makes, first off, people understand how many documents supporting this case exist. Second, they will understand how much when these documents surface, they are destroyed or just confiscated away from public scrutiny. Right. He he lies it all out there, and uh, he also makes a very good case for the original Christianity. You know, the Paulus Paul, as you call him in English, was the founder of the Roman Catholic Church, but he was an enemy. Not only did he hunt down Christians <laughs> for sport, <laughs> he was a mercenary who was hunting down Christians, yeah. and then he has this bullshit revelation. You know. <laughs> 
if he wants to crush Christianity, a much better way to go about it than hunt down and kill Christians is to hijack the entire thing. And that's exactly yeah. what he did. Yep. And the first Christians who were descend, who were uh, James, uh, brother of Jesus, James, Jacob, he was uh, heading the church. And you know what brother of Jesus and the original congregations in the Middle East, you know what they used to call Paul? Huh. They called him Paul the liar. <laughs> And, and Paul, of course, obviously never met Jesus. So uh, we, are, we are dealing with a religion today that basically has nothing to do with original Christianity. So I'm pretty yeah. sure the original Christianity, the original circles that uh, inherited, that was left when Jesus vanished from the story, this was probably a, the, the, the core uh, thing in their, in their uh, spiritual belief. And so the Templars are the real uh, heritage to yes. to this story, as I see Cath- it, and the Cathars specifically. Yeah, were um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's ironic, you know, that the Catholic Church would persecute and destroy the very order that was practicing the the closest thing to the the uh, ministry, if you will, of Jesus than than even the Church. But yeah. um, they they wouldn't count out to their. Uh, to their rules, so uh, they had to be eliminated, which is, you yeah. know, yeah. it's what they did. Yeah. It's what they still do. Still do, uh, at least spiritually. Now, yeah. um, one last thing about this story, and that's, uh, you mentioned, uh, there's a loose thread I have in my notes from part one, okay. because in the Sinclair documents, in the Sinclair, and in the Cremona docs, you mentioned that there was many treasures, not just the head of Baphomet, but also, right. for example, the Grail, Saint Graal, Holy Blood, Saint Graal in French, right? Holy Blood, it means. Yeah. So the Grail, but also the Ark. And an interesting thing you mentioned in part one, which you should clear up now, is that you think part of the code in the Kensington Stone refers to not 10 people, but the 10 commandments. Yeah, yeah, I think so, because... In the um, in the ritual of the York Rite that I talk about, where I made this discovery of the cryptic code, which is the title of my book, um, was that was the, the the numbers correspond to specific um, numerical mentions of, of, of things in the ritual. And, and, and without going too deep into the ritual, one of the things we learn is what goes into and onto the Ark of the Covenant. But what we discover in the ritual that goes back to the Enochian mysteries mm-hmm. is that um, the three grand masters decided to build a secret vault beneath the Holy of Holies in uh, the tabernacle within, within the, uh, well, the tabernacle is a traveling temple but the uh within the holy of holies um the sanctum sanctorum if you will inside the temple of solomon and so what they did was they put a um a copy of all the true treasures in the secret vault which was nine arches below the holy of holies and it was the three grand masters who built the secret vault and then in the ritual what tipped me off to this code was the in the lecture portion of the degree when they said, and the other eight arches were built by 22 men from Gebel. And I, I went eight and 22 
Those are the first two numbers in the Kensington runestone. And that's what started me on the code because those are the first two numbers. Mm. Well, as you follow the ritual, the numbers, two shelters, one day's journey north from the stone. Um, we had a camp. Uh, we were fishing one day after we came home, found 10 men red from blood and death. Well, interestingly enough, in the ritual, um, the Ark of the Covenant comes into the story at this time, and then um, uh, somebody is killed and literally covered from head to toe in blood. Um, and then the second mention of the second 10, um, I believe, corresponds to the second Ark that is a true copy of the Ark that's in the Holy of Holies. So... Yeah, because they knew how to build one, because in the Cremona documents, you said yeah. that uh, the manual to build it. Yeah, and, and so so uh, suddenly we've got two arcs, right? The mention of two tens, and the Ten Commandments would be one of the things inside of the Ark of the Covenant, not the only thing, but mm. probably the most n- notable thing. And um, yeah, so... So these, these guys must have brought one of the Ark as part of the treasure. Um. Well, as I said, what if I told you that the secret of the Ark of the Covenant wasn't where it was, but yeah, how, but to, how make to make it? it? Okay, so they brought that secret at least, how to make so it. So that secret, yeah. well, I mean, maybe they brought more than one. Who knows? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that for now. Yeah, okay. We, we, we'll revisit this case to we'll be sure. We'll revisit yeah, this yeah. in due time. But when you say Enochian, it's interesting that in a letter from Gerard Mercator, we know, you know, the Mercator. who that is, yeah. yeah. But the, the Mercator line is called after him. He wrote a, a letter to John Dee, who was big on the Enochian, in 1577, where he cites the lost work of James Knox describing an expedition to Vineland who returned yeah. with eight men in 1364. Do you think this could be our people? Yeah, I do. Because we also have in um, uh, the sagas of Iceland, they say the last, the lo- actually the last expedition mentioned in the sagas was in 1347 when a vessel of 18 men came from Markland, or, uh, that is Nova Scotia, to Iceland with a cargo of wood. They tried to bring it to Greenland, but the small ice age had settled in, so they couldn't even get to Greenland. Could right. this be, uh, do you think these are different people or could these be? I would bet that there's a Templar connection to all of these stories. Mm. I can't say with certainty, but I would bet my bottom dollar. Uh, I'd like to find out if the bishop, Eric Upsa, was Cistercian, because he went to find Vinland in the year of 1121 to Christian them. In other words, he knew there were colonies of Vikings there and that they haven't been Christian yet. So, so if he could go there in uh, as early as eleven twenty one, I'd like to know if he was Cistercian. Well, yeah, the, well, the Cistercians were around in eleven twenty one. Bernard joined the order in eleven thirteen. So whether he was connected to them or not, but remember, even if he's with a different order, as you know, um, we have Freemasons within the Vatican, and I'm sure that there are Jesuits within the Masonic order. Mm. People um, aren't always who they. They seem to be. Yeah. Or they can be. If you know what I mean. Yeah. There can be different layers to people. That's for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because I don't think it's always sinister that, oh, he's a Jesuit and a Mason, so he's betraying one of them. In his mind, he can be both, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, OK, I think we got it then. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, uh, Thomas Reyes Gord uh, in 2001 launched the theory that yeah. The Kensington Party was Cistercians from Gotland. He, there he agrees. But he says that the 10 dead wasn't killed by Indians, but as a result of the Black Plague. Do you yeah. put any stock in that theory? Yeah, you know, I knew Tom Ryersgord, and he was a really good fellow. I, I, I actually went to his home and talked to he and his wife, Camilla, and they were wonderful people. He died a couple of years after I met him, or like a year after I met him. He had cancer, but... Um, I, I really liked his idea, and it could very uh, be, could very well be plausible. Um, um, you know, I mean, as you know, it could have. You know, the ten men could have maybe died from plague, and we're talking about the the Ten Commandments at the same time. It, yeah. it could be both. Multilayered. Um, yeah. We know that they brought plague. We know that Europeans brought plague prior to uh, you know historical contact. But um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But but Tom was a progressive thinker. I, I remember when I was at my lecture, the first lecture I gave in the Kensington Runestone, he was there. And afterwards, he came up to me and he was so giddy <laughs> and happy with my findings because it, I didn't realize it at the time. But it supported the book he was about to publish. And right. Like I said, he was a very bright guy. He was a lawyer. He was he was a gentleman. And uh and I respect, uh, you know, everything that he wrote about. He he would even say, look, I don't know for sure if it's true, but I think it's plausible. And I agree with him. I agree with him. Yeah. And in part two, you made a big deal out of how the Templars and the natives got along. And I have to say, um, there are circumstantial evidence for that, too. We have the archaeologist Alice Beck Kehoe, who... Yeah said it was definite contact between Norse and natives at least as far back as 1300. And not only does it substantiate the Kensington expedition, but she speaks of historic sources, you know, to blonde Indians among the Mandane, but also to signs of tuberculosis among Indians around the year 1000. And and that means that they they came from Europe, obviously, and brought it over. And also the native memory about their ancestors' red horn and their encounter with redhead giants. And the Sioux woman uh, from the Sioux tribe, Susan Wingrow, In 1935, she told anthropologist Ruth Landers about an old Sioux memory of a visiting ship during the spring where 38 sailors or slash warriors with shell painted on their clothes. So one thinks that could be that. But the most telling evidence of all to support the fact that there was also friendly relations is the DNA signature. Because Iceland is one of the most DNA researched places in the world for obvious reasons we don't have to get into now and there is this dna signature of that into iceland entered a native american not inuit native american bloodline around the year thousand and that's when the first viking american (laughs) indian child was born a study found and so you know that just seals the case well yeah i mean there's look if you want to if you want to explore this contact issue that we've been going through, there's plenty of avenues um, to explore DNA. I think the DNA is, is the one thing that many people just accept as, as being true. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's multiple lines of evidence. They all converge on this and support it. And there's really nothing that 
doesn't support it. I mean, there isn't any evidence in conflict with it other than people just don't want to change the narrative. And that's not good enough. Mm. It's just not. No, it's not. Okay. And last thing, um, you've been involved in TV. Uh, right. What's uh, the shows you've done? Well, I've done little things over the, over the years, but the, the first major thing we did was a documentary called Holy Grail in America. I love it, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was an outgrowth of, of the whole Kensington Runestone research, and I was featured pretty prominently there. Mm. And then we did another show called Who Really Discovered America, which was basically the network, because Holy Grail in America did very well, they thought, well, is there more uh, you know, controversial artifacts. And I said, Jesus, there's all kinds of them. <laughs> Never you know? And I said, it's, it's endless. And, mm. and then eventually, uh, so we did another two hour documentary called who, who really discovered America. And then they asked me if, if we could do a series. And I said, absolutely. And then, you know, we pitched America on earth and it got picked up. And then we did three seasons of that from 2012 to 2013 or 2015. America Unearthed. That's like different subjects each episode. Yeah, yes. Okay, and you're, what's your role there? I was the host. And a lot of the subject matter was stuff, was my research. And so. Okay, we, uh, so I really hope it comes back because uh, even though it has this format that especially Europeans hate. But every American show has that format today. It's nothing you can do about it, right? It's the same yeah, format right. you see in Ancient Aliens and in Oak Island Story. But if you can look past this format, then there's a lot of good information coming up there. As, and like I told you off air, every second show, there is something connected to the Masons <laughs> or the Templars. Even when you're not, even when it's not expressed, if you look closely, bam, there it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, and, and a lot of that is not accidental, but that's mm. my influence. Right, right. You kind of sneak. I mean, you're sneaking the Templars in in every second show, yeah. <laughs> even even when it's not about the Templars. Well, it seems like they they sneak in there yeah. on their own. It's not like I don't need. They don't need my help. No, no, no. But but I mean, even when it seems not to be about it, if you're really alert, you can see that. Oh. This is yeah. connected. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. that. That's so there's nice. A, there's a thread there too. Yeah, there, yeah. It's amazing how often that happens. But um, I do think that um, the tradition that, that they were a part of um, has been over here many times. And so, yeah, it's going to dovetail with not just the Templars, but the tradition that, they, that they're a part of. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, listen, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be part of this show. Um, if it doesn't come back, you know, we've done almost 50 episodes, 49. Yeah. That's a pretty good run. And I'm, I'm proud of the work we've done. And if we if we get more opportunities, um, we'll make the most of it, I promise. Mm. That's just wonderful. Well, we root for that. And we'll tell our listeners if it is back on air. Oh, yeah, uh, and I'll let you know. I'll definitely let you know. Yeah. And until then, you know, they can find it the obvious places where, where people go to find that stuff. Oh, yeah. By the way, have you have you talked about that show on Coast to Coast AM? Oh yeah, sure. I think I heard the, an interview with you with yeah. uh, George Norrie about yeah, that. Yeah, George Norrie, and I've been with uh, uh, Jimmy Church many times, and Ian Punnett when he was hosting the show. I've been on the show many times. Yeah, I have I, I have respect for Ian Punnett, and what's the other um, the UFO guy? Um, Oh, the real uh, reporter in Coast to Coast, uh, George Knapp. Those two guys are great. George Knapp, yep, yep, yep. yep. Yeah. Ian Punnett was great. 
Yeah. And actually, you know, it was interesting. He lived in Minnesota for a while, and I gave a lecture to uh, a uh, a Templar group, uh, SMOTJ. I don't know if you know who they are, but yeah. in any case, um, he showed up at the lecture. I didn't know it at the time. Ah. He sat yeah, because the- he's a bishop in some church. Yes. And one of the things that he turned me on to with the hooked X, which is on the Kensington runestone, mm-hmm. and is uh, what I'm calling uh, a sacred uh, symbol that the Templars, navigators and, and cartographers used. And obviously the the, uh, the author and carver of the runestone and several other North American runestones that are, that are connected to the Templars. But he was the first one that put me on to the the connection to the Hebrew Aleph. Oh. And he, he asked me a question in that lecture. And, and like I said, I didn't know who he was at the time, but I did the, he was scouting me for the interview. Mm-hmm. And then when the interview came out, I recognized his voice and I said, wait a minute, were you the guy sitting in the back of my lecture? <laughs> he just kind of, he just kind of laughed, you know, but I said, nice. that was a really interesting comment. Well, he turned out to be right on, wow. um, because the Hebrew Aleph is basically a straight line stonemason's version of the hooked X. You know, I yeah. mean, the runes are built off of basically straight lines for the most part. Yeah. And that's that's kind of, if you think about the hooked X, it, it looks like the Hebrew Aleph. And mm. it's being used for the A sound or the, you know, the, the, the A, A sound in, in, uh, in runes. Yeah, I was going to tell you, um, yeah. but I'm going to tell you one thing off air about the hooked X. Okay. It was actually the first thing I mentioned to you when we had our first call. Oh, okay. That sounds great. But I don't want to spend time on the show for that. So actually, I think this wraps it up. So just left to thank you so much for your very generous and patient accounting of this huge story. And I I, I look so forward to have you back to go into more details about it. Oh, there'll be more for sure. And I appreciate it, Alice. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. It has. All right. Now, six hours we've done, so uh, <laughs> it's probably going to be a year or so until we talk again. But as soon as you have the book out, you contact me, you tell me, and come back and promote yeah, it. Yeah, the next one. Okay. Yeah, because it, it's still it's still such a big story that, you know, what's all the fuss about? Well, that's the big story. And that's what you cover in right, two of your right. books and probably also the new book. Yep. It's a huge topic, so I can assure you what we'll do. I'll have you back when your new book is out. And we go more into depths of the big ramifications, right? That's I mean, fine. It's such a huge story that I want both you and probably also Butler on sure. for, because this isn't a story that is exhausted in one mere show. So I think in the future you come back and we go deeper into that part of it. And I can also get Alan on to uh, corroborate and substantiate. Okay, sounds good. And then you, you can go much more into the journals uh, next well, time we have you on when your new book is out. Okay, well, I'm happy to do that. By the way, I've even discovered Janet Muir or whatever her name is and Don Rue. So I know about... Oh, great. Yeah, right. You mentioned those. Uh, I know about them. By the way, uh, you're you're publishing this book too, but it seems that Janet Muir already has published parts of the... Diana Muir. Yeah, Diana. She's published parts of the... Well, she's only published the first of 20 books. Right, right. But But it's fairly extensive and it was designed to sort of generate some interest and it hasn't um, gotten out to a wide audience yet. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I can talk a little bit about about the journals. Now, 
<clears throat> you know, my yeah, no, and that's and that's what I'm going. That's what I'm working on now. But we've actually got some new information. Yeah, that's related to the Cremona document that actually dovetails with Diana's journals. This is the first time we've had an overlap. And it's such a complicated story with Don Rue and and uh, and his people. Yeah. Although I'm I'm going to be getting more information. It's it it's like well, how can you be getting more information? I mean, isn't it all part of the same thing? Well, yes, it is part of the same thing. And why is it coming out in in pieces? And I can explain why that is. It's complicated, but it's ac it actually makes a lot of sense. You but, did explain some of it because okay, the great. the Jackson he divided it up. Yeah. To different people, clever, because of the Vatican uh, people, right? So okay, I wasn't sure what yeah. we talked about. I don't recall everything. You man you mentioned that, so perfect. I think that wraps it up for now. Okay, uh, sure, sure. Hey, listen, I really appreciate this opportunity, and it's really fun to meet you. I sure. look forward to someday meeting you in person. This will be great. Same here. Excellent, Scott. I'll let you go now then. Right. Just drop me a, a, a message either here on Skype or on email when you want to reconnect and we'll take it on part two. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm available anytime. I, I really enjoy our conversation. And, you know, a lot of times uh, when I do interviews, I don't get a chance to talk about some of the things that we're talking about. Yeah. And I really I'm really enjoying it because you're you're cutting to the you're cutting to the bone on this. And it's important that we do that because. It's a problem. Yeah, I agree. And that, this is what we do, man. In depth. Ah, well, that's I why they it. like us. Well, good. I'm glad they like it. Well, and and that's what I would like to focus on as well. Yeah. Comfortable conversation. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, listen. Um, that was fun, and uh, thank you so much uh, for having me on the show. This is really fun. I meant what I said. Okay. Uh, I appreciate. Uh, the more in-depth analysis. And I really think part two is going to be even more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. Excellent. All right, Al. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you very I'll much. Be, I'll be in touch. Yeah, ditto. Okay, Al. Take care. All the best. All righty. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that completes this session today, which... Whew, was on the longer side, even for all forum standards. Now, I'll not keep you hanging for much long, but I do want to contribute a few conclusions as I was harboring in the show. And there's first one thing I want to set the record straight, and that's regarding the Vinland, Vineland settlement. Now, just to recap the basics... And of course, for everything we're saying, there's so many things we don't have time to, to say. But one thing that has to be understood is Eric the Red. Eric Røde, as we call him in Norwegian, was banished from Iceland. And th that's when he went further west and established the first permanent settlement in Greenland. This was in the year 986. Obviously, <laughs> he didn't go back to Norway. So they knew there was stuff in the West. How much, uh, how detailed, who knows. But he went there, he established a permanent settlement there. There wasn't anything permanent prior to this, granted. But then Leif Eriksson, who by the way was a Christian, probably though a Celtic Christian, in year 999, which was not more than mere 13 years after, rescued two shipwrecked men 
in Vinland. And he's been given the, the credit of being the first, but that's ludicrous. Even the sagas admit it wasn't. The, the, the fact that he rescued shipwrecked people there prove that others went there before. But, you know, there was probably just random, there was no organized attempt. I mean, they had more than enough land where they wanted to. Grönland, Greenland in English, was green, called green, because it was Greenland. This was before the small ice age, and it was easy to easier to go from Norway to Iceland to Greenland. This became harder in the 1300s, when the, not just because of the Black Plague and lack of people and resources, but, but also because it coincided with the, with the Ice Age. Now, the casual tone and reference to these areas west of Greenland in all these sagas that's kept suggest that it wasn't seen as particularly significant by the contemporaries. It was assumed to be public knowledge which tells you how much traffic there really was. So Leif wasn't the first European in America, though he has been credited that, uh, and he actually heard the story of merchant Bjarni Herjolfsson, who sighted land west of Greenland after having been blown off course. So maybe Bjarni was the first, but he was certainly uh, among the first to be recorded and significant enough that Leif later heard about it. So Leif followed his course, beyond his course, and he named then Baffin Island Helulan. So the saga of Eric the Red mentions two other settlements in Vinland, actually. A settlement called Straumfjord, Straumfjord, I guess you would say in English, which lay beyond, they, they describe it in detail, lay beyond Shalarnes, as they call it, and the Wonderstrands. And one called Hoop, located even farther south. Only the gods know how far south they really went. Now, the ruins at Baffin Island are identical to Norse buildings in Greenland, and carbon-14 dating reveals the valley to have been habitated around 1300, whilst Norsemen lived in Greenland. So this isn't just a question of how early, but also how late. So what is the big deal about Templars and Norsemen going in that area at that time? when we know there were people, Norsemen, in in Canada at the same time as they were in Greenland. And in in fact, in 2012, Canadians discovered them all over the place, also in Willows Island, Nunguvik, Avajalik Islands, and in Tanfield Valley, where Norse textiles are found. In the year 1007, Torfinn Karlsefni, also known as Torfinn the Valiant, and his wife Gudrid colonized Vinland. So this was an efficient colonization attempt with more than 250 people from Greenland and remained in Vinland for at least three years. After a cruel winter, he headed south and landed at Straumfjord. He later moved to Strömsøy because the current was stronger there. There were some conflicts with the locals. Like I said in the show, uh, it hasn't all been peace and love all the time. In fact, there's been battles with both the Amerindian natives and the Inuits. But there's also signs of peaceful relations as the two sides bartered with furs and skins for food and red cloth. 
which the natives tied around their heads as a sort of headdress. And I think it was Gudrid Thorfinn's wife who eventually ended up in Rome and accounted for the lands west of Greenland. The Pope, the Vatican, was very interested in, in learning about this which we didn't mention in the show. Who knows, maybe it was because they suspected a Templar refuge to be there. Or maybe it's just because they was in general interested in more land, more people to Christian, more power to expand their territory. Indeed, they had perpetual conflicts in the East, so why not expand where they could? But at any rate... We know that Helge and Onestine Ingstar, the Norwegian archaeologist who discovered Lance Omedo, has shown that it was just a chip repair station. And it was founded by Leif Eriksson, who, like I said in the show, called it Leif Spudir. Now the sagas themselves describe Wineland as much warmer than Newfoundland and also as further south. So then we know they have a waypoint, which is Nova Scotia, Lansomadeau, which is between Greenland and Wienland. So I would expect Wienland, Wineland to be much further south so that it makes sense to have, it can't be right next to the waypoint station. <laughs> <laughs> so, but if, if the Waypoint Station, Leifsbudir, Nova Scotia, and all these other areas in Canada, all the way up to Greenland, if they have those uh, to coast hop yeah, and island hop, then it makes sense that eventually they come to Greenland, which would be the east of current USA. A uh, funny thing, by the way, is that new findings have shown that the Vikings used weed in Newfoundland. Probably other places too and not just hemp which obviously was in large use all the way up to well the 1900s but even for recreation i guess life wasn't too bad uh, even if it could be cold and wet now the legendary settlement in northeastern usa has to be mentioned called nurumbega you can see that in old maps too and that's the same bird actually as norway and that it did indeed appear on many early maps from the 1500s until the American colonization. So um, it's hard to tell if that's identical to Wineland. Maybe that's what rest of Europe referred to as Wineland when they, because they learned of it from the Norsemen. So they would call it Norumberga, the way of the northerners. So if they went that way, well... And Wienland itself even pops up in written sources, like that of Adam of Bremen's work around 1075. And we mentioned the main penny in the show, and that was from Olaf Schirr's time, that's uh, late thousands. So the Wienlanders were even using money. And all the Norse accounts about uh, our activity there was written down as early as the 1200s. And, you know, writing down wasn't the name of the game. Most things were oral back in the day. But thank God they did so that we have some evidence. Now to the Greenland mystery. It is one of the great archaeological mysteries what happened to the Viking colonists in Greenland. Because even Iceland was struggling during the Small Ice Age and the Black Plague. But they were in regular touch with the mainland. But the Greenlanders, well, they persevered for over 400 years, from around 1000 to roughly 1450. But then they abandoned their villages and vanished. And the, it wouldn't have been a mystery if they all came back to Iceland or even Norway. 
But they lingered on to 1450. By the way, again, what's the big deal to travel there in the 1300s? Actually, as long as there were people in Greenland, there would be knowledge about Wineland. So whatever you think of the Sinclair journals or the Cremona documents, the mere bottom line fact about the Kensington party is not out of character from mainstream history. And yet, they can't even go there. So let's be realistic. But here we have a real mystery, and that's the Greenlanders. At the height, the population was around 4,000. The, the Western settlement and the Eastern, the Western traded with Inuits. They had more Inuit contact. And that settlement was abandoned as early as around 1350. And the last bishop at Gardar died in 1377. So, for a start, what happened to the Western settlement? I mean, if the Eastern had survived, maybe we would have known. If the Kensington Party and others went down to Vinland, and from the Sinclair journals we see there was a lot of activity, then the most likely thing, if you just use Occam's Racer, is that the Western Greenlanders went down to join the other people who lived in Vinland. Why didn't they go to Iceland? Well, Iceland was getting icy, as the name suggests, also then. And not even Norway would be uh, a good place to go because they all emigrated from Norway in the first place. Lack of resources. Second, they probably knew about the Black Plague. So why would they go to Iceland or Norway and risk anything? No, no, they probably, who knows, maybe they, uh, one of the ships uh, coming by infected some of them, panic broke loose, and then they went south. That's also a possibility. So it doesn't have to be only the weather, which is what uh, mainstream uh, theoricians uh, favor. Uh, and we know that, the, I think, the latest written sources is uh, a marriage that was recorded in 1408 at Valsø fjord between a native Greenlander and an Icelander. But no written records mention the settlers. Carbon dating from the last Norse eastern settlement shows that it was defunct by the late 1400. So that's why we know the easterners were lingering on. And that coincidences with Columbus going to Iceland, learning about the area, probably then going to Greenland, raiding them, bringing back slaves and forcing them to admit, yeah, there's there's something called Greenland. Getting the resources from the royals and then embarking upon the expedition. Not knowing, of course. I mean, I don't think he went all the way down to Greenland, as Scott speculated, because then he would know where to go with his main ships. I think he just reckoned, yeah, let's go west. He had the ships to do it. He already made sure it wasn't dangerous, got evidence from the Greenlanders. Maybe even, who knows, at the time he, he raided them, there may have been Winelanders visiting too. So then he gets all these armadas rigged and goes straight west and lands much more further south than where Wineland was. Now, um, in 1355, King Magnus, who we mentioned in part two, who is the Magnus that is mentioned in the Sinclair journals and who was in the West, so it would fit with with Sinclair uh, dropping by, he commissioned, uh, like I also mentioned, Paul Knutsson 
uh, and they sent ships to Greenland to inspect its western and eastern settlements. Now, the Greenland carrier made the Greenland run at intervals until 1369, when she sank and was not replaced. So, the Kensington party, what's the big deal of them going the same route a mere ten years earlier or five years earlier, whenever it was? But I do agree with the mainstream speculation that part of the reason the Greenlanders vanished was the far-reaching impacts of the Little Ice Age, because intense cold affected the farming. We know that from evidence. Trade with the old world ceased, so the farming collapses, the trade collapses. And prior to 1315, there had been regular ship traffic between Norway, Iceland and Greenland. After 1350 year of the Black Plague exploding, the northern Atlantic became a nightmare of sea ice. So it's like a perfect coalition of of, uh, tragedy. A Danish archaeologist discovered in 2010 a Norse farm on Igaliku fjord, excavated a cemetery from the late period of Viking colonization and found almost no young women. So women of childbearing age had all but vanished. If they had starved, died from illness or been killed in warfare, they'd been in the cemeteries. So where did they go? So it's not just that the the people disappeared, but also all childbearing women. Again, could be a combination. Columbus first raiding them and then the survivors fleeing south. One of the Scots examinations of uh, one of the stones, I think one of the spirit point stones, uh, even shows that it even illustrates a map. And it's interesting because it's oriented with east at the top and north to the left, something a forger wouldn't know. Because until the 1500s, medieval maps were identically oriented to place Jerusalem atop. So that's interesting. And, And there's so many ancient maps that show... Vinland. You have uh, uh, the maps identifies Vinilanda in Sulla and encompasses an area from Maine in the north to the Carolinas in the south, from the Atlantic seaboard to central Pennsylvania. And there's so many maps of Vinland. You have uh, the 1570 Skull Holt map showing Latinized Norse place names in North America, which again shows that this wasn't just internal stuff among Vikings, but were becoming mainstream in Europe. They, among else, show land of the Risi. I think Risi means giants. The the location is unknown. It shows Greenland. It shows Heluland, in other words, Baffin Island. Markland, the Labrador Peninsula. Land of the Skrellingjar. The location is unknown, but Skrelling is what the Vikings call the natives. And probably they didn't distinguish too much between Amero-Indians and Inuits when they used that word. However, later on, and now I'm talking about the first generation's Viking Vikings, but later on the Templars obviously did, and also the Greenlanders, because they became accustomed to the Inuits, both through trade and conflict. And finally, it shows the promontory of Vinland which is the Great Northern Peninsula. So probably the whole American East Coast, and that could also explain why a colony wouldn't survive, even though hundreds and hundreds of people went there between 900s and at least the 1300s. I don't know what the journal says after that, but uh, 1350 probably is the end. So if you have like thousands of people, all in all, 
and then you must account also for children they get. Why did the colonies not be there anymore? Well, with such a huge area, it wasn't like one big city. There was many small enclaves. And uh, if they lose contact with the source, it's just in- inevitable that they end up mingling with the Indians, as even the Sinclair journals account for. They may also, of course, have moved around and uh, encountered hostile tribes, and they would be no match due to the skewed numbers. And remember, these people didn't have advantages of weapons that Columbus brought with him. So they would be at equal footing in terms of war equipment, but severely on demand in terms of numbers. Now, there's a new show out called America's Lost Vikings. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to check it out. Who knows? Maybe for once it can be a decent... Maybe they dare straying so mouse steps outside of the established paradigm. Anything that debunks the Columbus myth, at least, is a good attempt. And there you have it. Thank you for staying with us. And especially thank you to all our donors. You're really keeping us going here. And as ever, I've been your host, Al. Be seeing you. number one.